Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, return of the football. Schedules looking meagre, but the Bundesliga are feeling eager and could be back in May. We'll hear more from Raphael Honigstein. Also, it's an older model, sir, but it checks out. We set our retro jets for Premier League Season 2 when Man United did the double and Lee Sharp's goal celebrations weren't the only thing that was criminal. Plus, the first of our quarterfinals in the Intertotally Cup as Alvaro Romeo takes on Pat Nevin. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. the days, of course, before the Toby Football Show was here to help with any moments of tedium and ennui. And, and doing just that for us today, I'm delighted to say, are Michael Cox and Matt Davis-Adams, together for the first time since their first round uh, debacle in the quiz. Can they put the bitterness aside? That's the question. Matt? No. All right, then. Daniel Story is also here, somewhere between fire and ice, playing the tepid water role. And, uh, and well done to Michael Cox, who correctly identified Iggy Pop's real name as Michael. Uh, James Osterberg. Correct. If only that been one of your general knowledge questions. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but you're through. When's your quarterfinal coming up? Uh, well, I think I'm, I'm last of the four, presumably. Are so you? So I've got, uh, yeah, a, a good rest in between games, yeah. All right. Lots of things to talk about. We've got a quarterfinal coming up, as I mentioned, very shortly. Bit of news, though, to begin, because many people taken aback late last week by word from Germany that the Bundesliga is looking to make its return in a matter of weeks, potentially, by May the 9th, with strict measures, players washing their own kits, apparently, and, of course... Games behind closed doors. Geisterspiel. And the guy to speak to about all of this is Raphael Honigstein, who I'm delighted to say joins us now. Raphael, hello. Hello, James. Hello. This is really exciting news from the Bundesliga. Uh, first of all, let me ask, how, how would it work, the Bundesliga returning in May? So it would work um, relatively normal uh, in the sense that they would play home and away at the grounds um, initially appointed for those games, so not centralized games uh, or some biodome or anything like that. But of course, they would reduce the people involved uh, to a bare minimum. Uh, no spectators goes without saying, but also very few people allowed in to facilitate the game. Um, very strict uh, regime as far as letting in about 300 people max um, that's in and around the stadium to make sure that the games are delivered in a broadcastable format now there's still some debate of whether the players might be actually forced to play masks at which point i think this will not work um, and of course there are huge concerns of how the testing regime would work if one of the players were to test positive uh, just before a game would that then mean the whole team being sent off to quarantine if yes for how long there are still i think some sort of gaps in this concept which makes it a little bit shaky in my view okay uh, players washing their own kit was one 
uh, feature that has been mentioned. Also, fans providing cardboard cutouts for themselves to give the players a little bit of company. I, I see Borussia Gladbach out of a scheme whereby they can make for 19 euros a cardboard cutout life size of themselves and over 6,000 of them have already been ordered. Yeah, that's right. I think it's it's up to 7,000 almost now and uh, they, they do look quite good. I mean, they certainly look better than, than empty grey seats and I think it's it's a case of trying to make the most of what is a very unsatisfactory situation. Uh, a lot of organised fans have said they, they don't want... Uh, those so-called ghost games to come back. They feel football without fans is really nothing. And the fact that German football is really forced to almost rush back to to stage these games in the hunt for some TV money that still needs to be paid is sort of an indictment of how the industry is is run and is, is behaving in this situation. I think you don't necessarily have to talk of it in such moralistic terms, but it, it certainly, um, I think, is understood widely uh, including in the clubs and the TV rights holders, that it's not going to be the normal sort of football coming back, but some kind of weird, uh, lesser version of it, if at all. With the pressure, as you mentioned, to get football back underway because of the club's finances, with an internal DFL report uh, last month mentioning that around about a third of the top two division sides could be insolvent or facing insolvency uh, by the summer if football doesn't get back underway soon. It all depends on the uh, go-ahead from the government. So politically, how does the wind blow on this? Well, it keeps changing. I think there's a lot of support, but there's also a bit of backlash against the support. Um, I think Bild kind of jumped the gun a little bit last week when they uh, had these big headlines of football returning on the 9th of May and uh, Sky, one of the major rights holders, uh, put an ad in build saying yes football's coming back and uh, then a lot of politicians sort of backtracked a little bit and said hold on a second you know we still have to talk amongst ourselves we still have to look at these uh, medical concepts hygienic concepts in great detail and we're hearing suggestions and this is not confirmed yet but there is a possibility that on the 30th of April when all the federal ministers who are in charge of health matters in, in Germany will convene that there might not even be a firm decision made but they might actually postpone all decision when it comes to bringing back football for a little bit longer at which point that 9th of May which is always going to be a very ambitious time frame I think will become uh, unfeasible and then I think we're looking at um, mid or the end of May at best. What do you think is going to happen, Rafa? What would be your guess? My guess is that we will see football coming back um, in May. I think it's more likely to be the 23rd than the 16th, the way things are going. 16th, I think, is a realistic possibility. 9th of May, I don't think it is at this stage. And then uh, we are hugely reliant as far as you know the, the, those games going through on two things. One, that the overall situation in Germany keeps improving, that there's no second spike um, now, as you know, the lockdown is being lessened and it's being loosened. And there is a fear that that might then translate two, three weeks down the line into a renewed increase in cases, at which point I think the Bundesliga will, will be told, first of all, sorry, but you have to wait for political reasons as much as anything. And the second reason is what we talked about earlier is to to see that none of the players, none of the staff, none of the coaches involved will test positive because I think at that point, um, it becomes very, very difficult to continue. Right. Well, in the meantime, uh, the Dutch have said they won't be continuing with their Eredivisie campaign, which means no title for Ajax or Alkmaar, who were tied on top of the Eredivisie, but equally no relegation for Alan Pardew's Den Haag. 
Everybody else, I suspect, will be watching the Bundesliga with interest uh, to see how they might emulate this or maybe get their own campaigns underway. What, what do you think the, the knock-on effect will be on things like the Premier League? Well, I think you're right. I think the Bundesliga will be a test balloon and will be seen as such by, by some of the major leagues. Uh, Germany are a little bit ahead, ahead of the curve, um, aside from football, when it comes to getting out of the deadlock and hoping uh, they can control the pandemic. But of course, a the situation between Germany and Italy and Spain is not fully comparable, and I think there is also, um, you know, the fear that uh, it will not work out. At which point, the kind of symbolic failure, if you will, to bring football back, I think, will have a very negative knock-on effect for these other leagues. So uh, there is hope, um, if you if you will, and uh, some optimism that this could could increase maybe a bit of the public pressure if there is even such a thing to bring football back. But at the same time, of course, there is a danger that it could all backfire quite badly. And I think the only thing we do know is that everybody will indeed be looking um, at that uh, attempt to to bring football back uh, because nothing else is on. And it could be quite important what happens there. Absolutely. Rafa, thank you very much indeed. Keep us posted. I will. Thanks, James. Raphael Honigstein there. Is that a good thing, Daniel? Bundesliga coming back? Uh, it's a good thing, as Rafa says, if it works, for sure, because it's kind of a symbolic thing, not just for, for football around Europe, but also as a kind of cultural touchstone, because I think football is the thing that gathers the most people together for something that doesn't matter. So if it, you know, it makes it work, brilliant. But I'm deeply cynical that it, A, will happen on time and B, will work. All right, we'll see. In other news, Phil Neville has confirmed he's going to step down as England women's manager in July 2021. That's over a year from now. Matt, why is it going to take so long for him to actually move on? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, they're not going to be playing any games for the foreseeable future, is the, is the short answer to that. He was supposed to be kind of covering three tournaments, being the World Cup last year, the Euros and the Olympics, but obviously two of them have um, have fallen by the wayside but it's quite convenient for all parties I think really because um, you know the World Cup went okay not great the She Believes Cup and the results since not good uh, and I think that from Neville's point of view he was probably doing his reputation a little bit of damage and from the FA's point of view you know he had very few qualifications to take the lead role in women's football in England in the first place and that was kind of coming home to roost a little bit. So in terms of his successor, you, one would hope that that lesson has been learned and, and that the idea is to get somebody qualified for the job rather than somebody with a name who would attract people to women's football, although I'm not sure that Phil Neville is ever a name um, that would have done that particularly. So it's going to be really interesting to see who they go for. It's not until 2022 that England will play a competitive game because they are hosts of the Euro, so they don't have to go through qualifying for that. Um, I'm sure that's, that's part of the reason why Neville's going now as well um, but it's going to be difficult for whoever takes over whenever that happens because obviously they're not going to have immediate access to their players which is something that international managers are used to but but we don't know when it's going to be the case that they can do anything but kind of video conference calls with with um, the troops that they're going to be trying to get on side some good names linked with the job though potentially it's a feels like a, a really important moment for the England women's national team because they tried one way that didn't work they have um, a squad and access to a pool of players who are, who are better than they've had in, in several generations. They just need somebody capable and experienced um, to guide them and, and get the most from them. Well, more on that and the potential replacement for Phil Neville probably in 
uh, the offside rule in their uh, next podcast, which is coming up next week. All right. I'll move on to some tweets and loads of listeners writing in after Thursday's show, in which we had a bit of a chat about our favourite footballing adverts. James Horncastle went with Nike advert, Georges Benjour, Obama. Uh, Jules was all about the cage threesomes, no change there. You remember, we can't <laughs> wandering around with this uh, clipboard. And I personally like the 2010 Rooney in a Caravan, Right the Future one, the Hocus Pocus Focus Opus. Uh, loads of listeners, though, backing Jules on this one. Uh, Matt says, I'm with Julian Laurent. The cage is classic. I also love Nike. Take it to the next level, which is that POV one. You know, when Ibra goes on, you are Ibra. Or maybe you're a player against it. I can't remember, but it was very good. And the amazingly camp Pepsi Football Warriors. I don't remember that. Pepsi Football Warriors, anyone? No. Keith Wiltshire, three on three matches. First goal wins. That that should take it every time. Matt Bungard, I completely agree with Jules that the cage is the best advert. But the team with Roberto Carlos Figo and Ronaldo didn't win. They lost the final to Triple Espresso when Henri jumped off Totti's back on the kickoff and headed it in. Is that legal? No, I don't think it is, actually. Well, you certainly can't uh, You can't lift a player rugby union style at a corner, if that okay. makes sense. You can't do like a line-out. So I assume that you can't jump on someone's back to spring yourself in the air. Although I would like to see someone try it. Absolutely. Russ Eckhall points out that the director of Nike's three-on-three tournament ad was, do you know this? Former Python and director of Brazil, Terry Gilliam. How about that? Wow. Mm. Oh, Ben Schneider says, uh, no love for the Jose Plus 10 ad from the 2006 World Cup. Now, I must admit, I didn't get this from your reference, Ben, but I went back and looked, and it's the one where the two kids in a kind of generic Latin country are there on a dusty scrap of land, and they decide to have a kickabout and invite some friends, and they pick a kind of fantasy lineup of the world's best players, and Zidane comes out from behind the corner, Kakao runs on, etc. And then there's a slight... Pause when one of them says Beckenbauer and the other one chuckles, but then Beckenbauer comes out through the magic of, you know, TV and then Platini, etc. And it is a great advert. You're absolutely right, Ben. But the weird thing about it is, and it's kind of mind-boggling, is that at the end, Frank Lampard, who one of the kids has picked, scores against Oli Khan, but then Khan manages to push it back out and pretend it wasn't a goal. So that's a Lampard goal against the Germany keeper, wrongly not given, four years before 2010. I had my blood went cold when I saw that. <laughs> Spooky. This doesn't mean anything to you guys at all. I can't remember that particular advert. Um, I can I can throw in one that's pertinent to what we're talking about today, if you like. Oh yeah, please do. We're talking about ninety three, ninety four today. Andy Cole featuring big in that. I was like the Reebok did a series. Um, with players, what would have happened to them if they hadn't bought Reebok boots? So, like, Peter Schmeichel was a pig farmer back in Denmark, and Andy Coles was. Some of his friends had told him to buy a firework, an expensive firework, instead of some Reebok football boots, and he said, peer pressure, I think they called it, and it cuts to him working in a chip shop in Nottingham, behind the counter, like, changing the fat and stuff in it, and he says, oh, it was a was a pretty good firework to be fair we lit it up into the air it went whoosh bang it was great and then he looks wistfully down at the deep fat fryer and it just says andy cole chip shop assistant nottingham i always really like that one it was a good series matt do you remember who the guy was selling flowers by the side of the road that's oh, the one i remember but it was gigs was it can was it cantona no, I thought Giggs. that was I thought that yeah. was Ryan Giggs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that mate, yeah, because he's got the thing like the apron on the front that you keep the changing and stuff. Yeah, it's a good series. Mm, excellent, 
Leah Cotone adds, as this uh, season that you're doing today, 1994, was the first Premier League season that had a main title sponsor, which is the weirdest sponsor that you've seen for a football tournament? The Milk Cup can... is always one that, uh, that I think was quite an odd one. You see, the, it was a name for the League Cup for a couple of years, wasn't it? Milk? Yep, absolutely. Zenit Data Systems was another mm. Uh, my, my team, Kingstonian, three years ago won the Robert Dias Cup, which just feels incredibly Tim Pot. Um, <laughs> I, was, I prefer it when a cup is uh, sponsored by a liquid, because then okay. you can, you know, like a milk cup feels like an actual thing, whereas right. a Capital One cup, I can't really visualise that as well. Right, so Carabao Cup, that works for you. If I, yeah, if I try to forget the taste of Carabao, which I've experienced only once and never again, <laughs> then that's okay. absolutely fine. Okay, then. All right. Well, after all of that red-hot content, listener, it's time for some quiz action. As you know from your bedroom wall chart, eight of our pundits are left in the game (laughs) with the quarterfinal lineup as follows. Daniel will be taking on Julian Laurent. Jack Lang's up against James Horncastle. Michael must face Mighty Car Anchor. And the first of the quarterfinals, which is coming up next, pits Alvaro Romeo against Pat Nevin. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Inter Totally Cup by hook or by controversial tiebreak tactics. Eight contestants have survived a brutal opening round and made it through to our quarterfinals. Ladies and gentlemen, let's meet the contestants in the first of them. Up first, he is the Basque Brainiac and the destroyer of Duncan Alexander. Does he feel pumped? I feel pumped, ready to rumble. Si, senor, he is Alvaro Romeo. Woof, Alvaro. Good to have you back. Yeah, and I feel more pumped than ever before, so let's go for it, man. Yeah, let's do that. You've already put out one of the favourites. It sounds like you really are. Looking forward to this, but let's now meet the man you're going to be up against. And his opponent... There ain't nothing silly about this man from the furthest isles of Scotland. He saw off Lindsay Hooper in the first round. Can he keep the wolf from the door a second time? He is Pat Nifty Nevin. Welcome back, Pat Nevin. I'm keeping that intro forever. I love that intro with passion. The fall, even getting my real nickname that only my mates use, Nifty. Right. So, well done. Although a bit of geographic license, I think I detected in there, but musically um, impossible to beat, certainly in the, the intros we've heard so far. Pat, I don't know if you were listening to our last show, but Alvaro controversially said that he was concerned about facing you because you've been alive so long. Um, how do you feel about that? I, I think he's absolutely spot on. I'm with him for that. Um, the, the downside of it is you have great memories for 40 years ago and no memory of the last 10 and uh, that's the Achilles heel, I'm afraid, of being alive so long. The, the, thi- the thing is, James, that uh, Pat has not Wikipedia knowledge, but real, vivid knowledge, and this is what <laughs> right. scares me. Let's hear, then, uh, your specialist subjects. Pat, what are you going for? Well, I'm going for the change of football and when it started for real, and it's the Ajax side of 1970-73, they won the European Cup. And three occasions, three in a row, and uh, I actually went to one of those games in that round. So Alvaro's right. My age, <laughs> I have been here forever, and I did see this team play. So it's European Cup, Ajax, 70 to 
73. Brilliant. Although that's actually football from 50 years ago. So we'll see how strong you are on that. Alvaro, what are you going to be specialising in? Well, I'm going to expose myself and my knowledge of Spain's successful period between 2008 and 2012. Spain won three major titles. And, uh, well, I feel like uh, I'm ready to be examined about it. All right. Expose yourself now, then, as we ask you questions on Spain 2008-2012, Avaro, beginning thus. Question one. Which two teams did Spain beat on penalties during those three tournaments? It was Italy and Portugal. That is correct. Question two. Four players started all three finals that Spain appeared in. Which four? Iker Casillas, Sergio Ramos, Xavi Hernández and Andrés Iniesta. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Question three. Atletico Madrid only provided one player in all three tournaments, but who was he? The sound of Alvaro being exposed on question three. Alvaro, do you have an answer for us? I need three seconds. Atletico de Madrid. Apparently you don't. Must hurry you for an answer, Alvaro. I am afraid I can't. All right, the answer was Juan Fran. Okay. Question four. Two players in that period won the Champions League with their club and also an international tournament with Spain in the same year. But which two players? It has to be Fernando Torres and Juan Mata. That is correct. Can you name the year? 2012. Correct. On to question five then, Alvaro. This for a four out of five opening round score. Vicente del Bosque is one of two people to win the Champions League or European Cup and the World Cup as a manager. Who is the other? To win the Champions League and the World Cup. Mm. Champions League or European Cup and <laughs> the World Cup as the manager. To win both those prestigious tournaments, only two people have done it. The other one is Alvaro. I'm going to get it wrong, but uh, it's going to be um, Beckenbauer. I'm afraid not. It's Marcello Lippi. Mm. Marcello Lippi. Of course, Juve yeah, beating Ajax in 96 and then 2006, 10 years later, the greatest ever of World Cup triumphs. So there you go. Three out of five for you, Alvaro. How do you feel? Not very well. If you were up against Matt Davis-Adams or Michael Cox, you might be all right. But let's see how Pat Nevin responds as we ask Pat questions about Ajax from 1970 to 73. Question one. In which stadium did Ajax win their third European Cup? Um, a stadium I've been to, Red Star Belgrade Stadium, I believe. Yeah, Red Star Belgrade, I think. Excellent. That's absolutely correct. Question two. Only two non-Dutch players appeared in Ajax's three European Cup finals. Who were they? Uh, well, Horst Blankenburg. Well, I knew that one immediately. Um, Vasovic, he was the captain of the first one, I believe. That's absolutely correct, Pat, and I love the way you commentate on your own answers. <laughs> uh, question three. Name the three teams that Ajax beat in the semi-finals during this run. Uh, the three teams in all three semis each year. So, let's yes. Madrid, uh, Benfica and I'm going for Real Madrid, obviously. Real Madrid. That's correct. Question four. Ajax beat Celtic on the way to winning in 1971. Who scored Celtic's only goal in that tie? Yeah, I feel as if I'm cheating in this one because I was at the game and it was at Hamden Park in Wee Jimmy Johnson scored that day. <laughs> he did. 
Question five. Who was the only English team that Ajax played in these three seasons? Oh, Arsenal. Was it Arsenal? It was Arsenal in the 1972 quarterfinal. And at the end of that round, Mr Living Archive, Pat Nevin, you scored five out of five. Woof. Oh, I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm, a, I'm happy with that, but B, I watched some of the old games in preparation for this. And there's a goal that Cruyff made against Basel in 71, which is one of the best assists I've ever seen in my life, and I'd never seen it before. So it was all worth it just for that. Pat, describe it for us if you would. Well, he's got his back to the goal. He's on the right-hand side, and he's marked with two players coming close to him. So he has to get across, in, and he does my favourite trick, a scoop. But he does it behind himself. So he scoops it over his own head onto, uh, I think it might have been Kaiser running in to... Uh, no, it was Van Dijk running in to score a header. It sounds impossible. It is genius. Genius indeed. All right, your performance wasn't bad there and it means you have a two-point lead as we head towards the general knowledge round later on. Looking forward to that for now. It's many thanks to Alvaro and Pat. We'll catch up with you later on. Wow, guys, Pat Nem is a bit of a monster on these specialist subject rounds, isn't he? Can you imagine how um, normally I feel quite inferior to Pat when he's sat next to me in the gantry because he's such a clever bloke about most stuff, but how am I going to face him when we eventually get back up to the top of the East End at Stamford Bridge again, knowing that he's powered through five out of five in both his specialist subjects, and I I didn't. That's so true, Matt, you didn't. Uh, Well... It'll be Alvaro that'll be facing him later on over a set of general knowledge questions. So looking forward to that later. Right now, though, it's time to look back. In the next of our Premier League Classic series, we're going to 1993-94. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbgumbleware.org. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Bubble Show from Muddy Knees Media. 1993. Badil and Skinner were giving the nation Stato in his dressing gown. Taylor's England were having their end times. Oh, it's a mistake by Pierce and humiliation here. Gualtieri. And it was the second season of the Premier League, now known as the Colling Premiership. And domestically, so much happened in that campaign. Squad numbers were introduced for the first time. Squad numbers, just think, Matt, if they hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> Newly promoted Newcastle were tearing up the league. Newly promoted Swindon, not so much. Spurs were getting stung for bungs and Bruce Grobelaar for much, much worse. But we'll get onto that later. But what didn't happen so much in this season was a title race. Man United, the inaugural Premier League winners the previous campaign, going two for two, finishing eight points clear of Kenny Dalglish's Blackburn Rovers. Michael, this... This vintage of Man United, it has a special place in their supporters' hearts. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really, really good team. It's an obvious thing to say considering they won the league. But the first season, as we previously discussed, there was, you know, a few 
A few question marks in that United side that I think, uh, you know, Cantona managed to cover up with his introduction. But yeah, this second season, they were so much better. I mean, Cantona obviously was there from the start. They'd signed Roy Keane from Nottingham Forest. And I just think of this side as, obviously, they, they went on to win the treble five years later. But I feel like that was a squad victory, whereas I feel like this was a team victory, if that makes sense. This was a pretty consistent 11. You can name it off the top of your head. The only question really be Konchelskis or Sharp on one of the wings with gigs on the opposite side. But you think of this as a very classic Manchester United side. It felt like the the one season that they had of kind of crossover between young and old. And yet it was arguably the most dominant Premier League season in terms of they lost once of their first 29 league games. They were so much better than anyone else in the league. You had a sentiment field pairing of Paul Inson and Roy Keane, which is arguably the peak in Premier League history. You had, uh, as Michael says, Konchelskis and Sharp on one side and Ryan Giggs being absolutely sensational on the other side. Cantona and Hughes was kind of new Manchester United and old Manchester United. You had Brian Robson still playing games when needed. And then, yeah, that defence with, with Schmeichel. Again, everyone talks about 98-99, but to me, that's Manchester United at Premier League peak. It really is. As you say, Daniel, they started like a house on fire. They posted the best ever start to a Premier League season, a a record that would stand for 12 years. Uh, They only lost one of their opening 29 matches and went into the new year with a 16-point lead. Well, it's just teed up for Cantona. They weren't the only side, though, off to a good start. Norwich, who'd been surprise contenders in the previous season, were again among the early challengers at the top. Striker Efren Okoku becoming the first player to score four goals in a Premier League match, which admittedly there had only been one season before this, but still, as the Canaries beat Everton 5-1 at Goodison Park. That, of course, wasn't the only thing that Norwich did that season. They also went to Bayern and beat them in the UEFA Cup 2-1 in Munich. Well, what a volley again by Jeremy Goss. It's Ellen Road all over again here in the Olympic Stadium. And Gunn leads the applause from the other end of the ground. And Norwich City have taken the lead here. Yeah, I think the interesting thing here was that we we didn't really know who Manchester United's starter rivals would be. In the end, it was Blackburn and Newcastle who finished closest to them. Blackburn expected maybe Newcastle, not so much as a newly promoted club. But if you remember, when we talked about 92-93... Uh, the two closest challenges to United were Aston Villa and Norwich. And within, I think, the first four games of the campaign, United had beaten both of them away from home. Aston Villa finished 10th, Norwich finished 12th. So they weren't particularly relevant in this season. And it just felt, you know, within weeks, like United really were were in the driving seat. And I think they were top after the fourth week and then never let go of a top slot throughout the campaign. As Daniel says, obviously they've won 13 Premier League titles, but this is up there with the most dominant. Absolutely. Mike Walker, the Norwich manager, leaving in January to take over from Howard Kendall at Everton, where he was involved in all sorts of a drama, as we'll hear soon enough. But Newcastle, who'd just come up from Division One as champions of that league, uh, ending up finishing third in the Premier League, Uh, How much of this was down to outstanding Andy Cole and his 34 Premier League goals that season? 
were quite a lot of it. It was a, it, it was a huge proportion of um, of Newcastle's goals. He got 13 assists as well, apparently, um, that season, which is quite incredible. I mean, he was, as you mentioned, outstanding. Of course, the name of his hit single, as we all know, but he was very much um, the focal point of that team. And his first goal of the season came at Old Trafford, actually, in... Um, sort of prescient moment for what would happen in um, in the next couple of years of his career when he went to United. Um, I liked Kevin Keegan, by the way, first game of the season for Newcastle. You mentioned they'd come up. He put in his programme notes, watch out, Fergie, we're coming for your title with kind of tongue firmly in cheek and apparently got a telling off from the Newcastle directors because we, we don't want to make Fergie angry. Um, and yeah, lo and behold, they did actually not maybe not push them, but, but certainly um, do way better than anybody thought they would. Yeah, on Newcastle, I mean, we always talk about the 95-96 side that nearly won the league as, quote, the entertainers. But, you know, a few Newcastle fans have said to me since we did that episode, actually, they think of the entertainers as, as this season. And it was a 40 victory over Sheffield Wednesday early in the campaign that kind of brought that tag on. And when you look at the starting eleven, there were quite a few different names to the side that, that went on that near title winning season a couple of years later. And just to back it up, they, they scored 82 goals this season, which was the most in the league. They clearly were positioning themselves for a, a proper run at the title. Andrew Cole, is he given the credit he deserves? When you look at the numbers he posted that year, 34 Premier League goals, which is still a record. No player's ever scored more than that in a Premier League campaign, although Shearer did equal it the following year. He also, Matt, as you touched on, is the only player in Premier League history to be top of the league for both goals and assists in a campaign. I think there's probably... This- probably two things at play there or maybe even three the first is that this wasn't Premier League football under constant television scrutiny so things that Andy Cole did up in Newcastle probably did go slightly under the radar I think Um, secondly there were a lot of very good English strikers at the time Um, you look through the top goal scorer list from from the first five seasons in the Premier League Um, there's that one famous season where I think seven or eight of the top ten are English and it's a who's who of of strikers we grow up remembering and being brilliant and and Cole really only had a place within that list rather than standing at the top of it which Shearer managed to overcome and I think the third thing was that you know there's that famous quote about Andy Cole that he he took five chances to score um, which was sold as a it was sold as an insult, but if you're scoring 34 goals in a league season and you're you're apparently missing more than you're scoring, then that's a heck of a compliment to your you know your your movement, your pace, your sense of timing, your runs. Uh, I think he was he was obviously brilliant in that season, but it probably went slightly under the radar because it was at Newcastle. Yeah, a couple of things I think also counted against him in the in the scheme of his career. He was at Newcastle this season, obviously, and, and for, I think the very start of, of the next one. But then he went to Manchester United, where he was a cog in the wheel rather than the star of the team, which, um, say, Shearer at, at Blackburn and at Newcastle definitely was. Um, also, his, his England record was woeful. He scored once in 15 caps, and that was in 2001, away to Albania. He made his debut for England in 1995. So I think really, if you're going to put him up there with, with the kind of elite Premier League strikers, as odd as it sounds, because you're talking about Premier League, you do need to take that into account to some extent. And he just, I remember he hit the bar on his debut for England against Uruguay. I was there at Wembley. It was a friendly nil-nil. He came off the bench and hit the bar, I think, with a header almost straight away. And the narrative at that time was kind of, oh, and, you know, as Daniel said, it takes him four or five chances to score a goal. Is this something that's going to carry over into the international game for him? And, and it kind of did, looking at just looking at his stats, caps and goals-wise. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, that one goal as well against Albania was one of those that the television missed because it was showing a replay. So it wasn't a particularly glorious moment in that respect either. <laughs> the, the assist that I, I didn't know, I assume producer Charlie's come up with that about him being the top goal scorer and the top assister. I didn't know that. And I think that's really interesting because uh, when Newcastle lost him to Manchester United, Keegan was quite insistent that actually when he got Les Ferdinand in, as he eventually did, that he'd be bringing in a striker who was better at feeding others. He kind of considered Cole as, as quite a selfish striker who just scored goals. So that assist stat would kind of disprove it. And just in terms of whether there's been a, anyone else who's come close to to matching that achievement, I mean, in 2002, 2003, uh, that was the one year in five where Omri and Van Nistelrooy were going for the title. That Omri didn't win the Golden Boot, but he did set a record number of assists. And Luis Suarez came very close in 2014 as well, finished top goal scorer and second on the assist list uh, behind only Steven Gerrard. So from that perspective, maybe Suarez scored too many of Gerrard's assists if he'd wanted to go for this quite otherwise unique double crown. He kind of, yeah, shot himself in the foot with that one. Well, among the other English goal scorers of the time who were maybe overshadowing Andy Cole was Matthew Letizier. Iconic performance in this season that the two goals he scored uh, in a 2-1 victory over Newcastle, Andy Cole, of course, getting the one for the Magpies, and a match that was a turning point and, and a game that really set the template or, or set the tone for the next couple of seasons for him. Yeah, there's a there's a really nice story where um, Alan Ball had come into Southampton in, I think, the January of that season and had started really, really badly. Uh, and I think they'd lost 1-0 at home to... Uh, Manchester City at the beginning of April and to all intents and purposes looked like they would be relegated and they had a team talk during the week before the next game and tried to come up Alan Ball tried to work with the squad and come up with a plan and his end result or his end conclusion was we're just going to give the ball to Matt Letizier um, literally that he, he then went on to score eight goals and I think provided four assists in his next in the last six games of the season and Southampton finished a point clear of going down so we talked last week about single-handed uh, teams and you know Alan Shearer was one of those this season for Blackburn. He scored half their league goals, but Letizia was above all that. He scored or assisted 69% of Southampton's goals that season, which is again a record for a Premier League campaign. That Newcastle match, I mean, the, the goals are ex- extraordinary. And uh, what was also pretty amazing is the fact that he he hadn't played in the previous five matches for Saints. He'd been dropped by the manager. Yeah, the, the manager who was Ian Bramfoot at the time and, and in this game was a Monday night game in, in the October. The Sky cameras panned to a sign, and this is very 1994, that said, Mr Blobby in, Bramford out as Saints manager. Which <laughs> <laughs> um, is about as 1994 as, as it can get. Um, but those two goals came in, I think, both in the second half, in, in, in under half an hour. They, I remember the, the first one, he, he kind of, headed past into his path just behind him so he back heels it over himself into his path past two defenders loops it over the head of the second one and, and volleys it low into the bottom corner and I've heard him say before he's really upset that he didn't make a clean connection with the volley and it kind of bobbled into the bottom corner which shows you what a perfectionist he is but the second one it's like a, a weak clearance that that comes his way and he just really 
nonchalantly flicks it up with his knee and then just volleys it into the top corner of the net with the goalkeeper looking behind him as it flies past him. And it's just the most beautiful, kind of almost arrogant, but you'd never sort of level that at Letizia as the style of player, just like, oh, just flick this nonchalantly into the top corner. And to do both of those two goals, two brilliant goals within the same half of football, within the same half an hour, really extraordinary and amazing that he didn't go on to sort of win 100 caps for England or whatever, but but scrap around at the bottom of the Premier League table for the entirety of his career when he was such a mercurial talent. You know, he really could have been one of England's finest players of his generation in, in his position. Also setting records that year, Arsenal, who in October of 1993 played four Premier League matches and finished all of them nil-nil. Classic George Graham. Yeah, um, I mean, that kind of sums up what a defensive side they were. I think it's worth looking at it from the other perspective as well, which is that they ended this season winning the Cup Winners' Cup. Um, and I just think that that, you know, this is when the Cup Winners' Cup was, uh, it was a straight knockout tournament. And at that stage, you know, keeping clean sheets was seen as the, the way to go in Europe, um, even away from home. It, it wasn't so much the kind of you've got to score and get an away goal. And Arsenal were a very good cup side at this time. I mean, the previous season, 92-93, they won both the FA Cup and the and the League Cup. And, and they weren't really challenging for the league. I mean, I think they were second when they went to Manchester United in October or November, lost 1-0 to a Cantona free kick and, and were never really in it. But um, yeah, I mean, certainly one of the highlights of, well, the highlight of uh, you know the second half of George Graham's spell at the club was winning the Cup Winners' Cup against the mm. Palmer side featuring Zola and Brolin and Aspria. Really, really good side. Arsenal without Ian Wright, who was suspended, but uh, Alan Smith scored a brilliant long-range volley. So, yeah, good memories for them. Acrobatics, but it comes for Smith. It's a goal for Arsenal. Alan Smith, a super strike for the Gunners. We've spoken a bit about reliance on strikers and in this season Arsenal scored 50 Premier League goals and Kevin Campbell and Ian Wright got 37 of them so that is over reliance <laughs> I would suggest <laughs> Swindon were having a record breaking season too they'd lost Glenn Hartle the manager who brought them up and his uh, former assistant John Gorman was in charge as they slumped to the bottom of the table and pretty much stayed there the whole way through. Despite a late flurry of goals after Christmas by Janaga Fjortov, they ended up 10 points adrift, rock bottom of the table. They also went into the final day needing to avoid a 5-0 defeat to not become the first team to concede 100 goals. Guess what they got? (laughs) (laughs) 5-0 defeat. And that's a Premier League record that, again, still stands. Can, can you see that broken, a team conceding 100 goals? Daniel, no? No, I don't think so. The The gap between the very richest and the bottom is much bigger now, I think. But the gap between mid-table and the bottom is far smaller every season. So I think in terms of that kind of... I mean, that's... Especially with the 38-game Premier League season, that's almost three a game. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, the the 42 game thing makes me feel a little bit sorry for them because I think there's a couple of other sides who might have been close to the 100 goal mark had they been forced to play 42 games. That said, it was 32 more goals than the next uh, leakiest team in the league, which was Oldham. I mean, that is a staggering margin, isn't it? (laughs) I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe 
Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begambleware.org. Well, at the other end of the table, Man United were top of the league and top of the charts. Uh, their Come On You Reds, recorded with status quo, number one in the pop charts for a whole two weeks that spring, which is a frightening thought. Michael, as you mentioned, they were number one pretty much from the end of August to the end of that season. And they did the double as well, a 4-0 victory over Chelsea in the FA Cup final. Missing out on the treble, though, after Aston Villa surprised them in the League Cup final, 3-1. The one thing I would think it's worth reiterating there is that they would have become the first ever side to win the domestic treble in England, which kind of sums up what a dominant season it was. Manchester City obviously did that later, um, but yeah, they would have been the first, so it would have been completely unprecedented. The, the one wobble they had in their season came at the time when Eric Cantona was suspended. He got, I think he got sent off twice in six days, once against Swindon for stamping on John Moncur and then before the suspension had hit, which happened then, there was a delay before the suspension hit, uh, he then got sent off immediately again. And it's kind of a, a, you know, I wonder if Ferguson thought at that point that there was a kind of a little insight into what would come with Cantona in terms of those disciplinary issues. Around that spell when Cantona was picking up red cards was the best period for Blackburn Rovers and their challenge. They actually pulled level with United with five games to go, although United... Uh, still had a game in hand, but Blackburn could only pick up one win in their last five and thus United rolled on and took the title with two games to spare. No drama in terms of the title race on the final day, but oh my word, what a relegation scenario on that final day. Swindon were down, of course, but five other teams were in the mix trying to avoid those two other relegation spots. They were Southampton, Sheffield United, Ipswich, Oldham and Mike Walker's Everton who'd only picked up one win in their previous 10 matches to enter the bottom three and were hosting Wimbledon in a do-or-die encounter. A full house at Goodison and a welcome fit for champions from Everton supporters not knowing if they've come to praise or to see their team buried. Everton needing a win promptly went 2-0 down. Wimbledon, of course, were quite a force at this time. Uh, They were in sixth place coming into this game, Joe Kinnear having won Manager of the Month for the third time that season, which is remarkable given that Sir Alex Ferguson only won it once in this campaign. Everton went behind when Anders Limpar handled, and there was a penalty, then there was a calamitous own goal from Gary Ablett. But then Limpar goes down to win a penalty, which Graham Stewart scores. Barry Horn comes up with an absolute worldie, and then Stewart again finds the goal that keeps the Toffees up with nine minutes to play. Stewart, Stewart again. Yes! Don's keeper Hans Seggers looking less than convincing on that Stewart shot, and we'll, we'll come on to possible reasons for that very, very shortly. But Everton's keeper, Neville Southall, he'd been defying physics throughout this campaign, coming up with his usual exploits. Dan, you've spoken to him about, about how things went under Mike Walker. Yeah, it was a it was a, a rotten time for the club. Howard Kendall had left, who was their um yeah, you know, he was their hero. He was their 
um, either their Clough or their Ferguson or whoever, and that had gone a little bit sour. Walker had come in. I think he basically wanted to do things his way and he had this idea that he was going to show Everton what he was made of and they were wretched not just for the end of this season but until he was sacked in the in the November of 1994 they started the next season appallingly as well um, it ends very well because Joe Royal comes in makes everyone feel better and they win the FA Cup the following season but you know looking back it, they were incredibly close to to being relegated for the first time as it turned out it was Sheffield United who went down They'd been as high as 15th in the course of that final afternoon, which in a 22-team league you'd have felt pretty comfortable with. They were never in the bottom three until almost the last kick of the day in injury time, Chelsea scoring a goal to win 3-2 and send the blades down. All right, well, Neville Southall, one of the heroes for Everton, across Stanley Park, meanwhile. What to say about Bruce Grobelar? Grobelar, one of the most decorated keepers in English football history, in this campaign, having won back his starting role at Liverpool from David James, involved in a series of high-profile errors, particularly in one 3-0 defeat to Newcastle, a match that was later cited as evidence in his high-profile match-fixing trial. He was charged with conspiracy to corrupt, along with three other defendants, a Malaysian businessman, the Villa striker John Fashnow, and Wimbledon's keeper, and Sagers, who led in that crucial goal in that last day encounter against Everton. The evidence you'd have to say against Grobelar was pretty strong. He was filmed in a bugged hotel room, talking about throwing games, admitting that he'd received £40,000 for the Liverpool-Newcastle match in '93, and also then accepting a further £2,000 as part payment for throwing matches. He uh, said that he'd heard there was a conspiracy going on and just wanted to gather some more evidence. And amazingly, he got off at first. The jury couldn't agree a verdict in two successive trials. And he managed to sue the son for libel, who they carried the story, and was awarded £85,000. The son then took him to court and eventually to the House of Lords, where they got his award slashed to just £1, and he was ordered to pay their legal costs, which were half a million pounds, which effectively bankrupted him. He was never banned, though, and he played on at various levels of the English game until 2007, which is kind of remarkable after being involved in, a, in an incident like that. He was also involved in a curious incident with Steve McManaman in a 2-0 defeat at Everton, where McManaman made a bit of an error for a goal by Mark Ward. And feels that McManaman, look at this! That's what it means to concede a goal in a Merseyside derby. And they basically had a fight on the pitch, um, Maybe fights are a little bit harsh, but they both kind of took a swing at each other and connected. Um, and you don't really hear about that that much compared to some of the, you know, Lisso against uh, David Batty or uh, Lee Bowyer and uh, Kieran Dyer. It kind of never gets mentioned. But yeah, I suppose Grobelar had his uh, mind on other things. Perhaps so. I mean, watching the Newcastle, I mean, it, it's always dangerous to second guess what a keeper is doing or not on any given shot. But watching that Newcastle-Liverpool game again, it... It's interesting, let's say. Anything else about the 93-94 season, guys? Yeah, there's a couple of bits that I noted. Uh, I liked the uh, the idea that Peter Reid was sacked after four games as Man City manager and by October was playing for Southampton. I imagine that probably hasn't happened much since. Um, she'll probably also mention the the John Fashion New elbow on, on Gary Mabbott fracturing his 
his cheekbone and um, leading to the PFA putting up posters in, in dressing rooms up and down the country saying elbows can seriously damage your life. Um, and the other thing that caught my eye was Peter Swales removed as, as Man City chairman after a kind of bitter campaign against him by supporters and, and Francis Lee taking over, paying £3 million for 30% of Manchester City, which seems, yeah, strange looking at it through 2020 eyes. Yeah, one thing I liked, and we've kind of touched upon it already, but it's quite funny, so I'm going to mention it again. The biggest home win was Newcastle's 7-1 win over Swindon, and the biggest away wins were Liverpool's 5-0 win over Swindon and Leeds' 5-0 win over Swindon. I was just going to... We talked about the relegation battle, and this notion of of teams bottling Leeds or bottling things has become a very modern thing, but Sheffield United very much set the early tone in the Premier League years because... They went on a brilliant run towards the final day. They lost one of the last 12, although they dropped nine points from winning positions during those games, which is clumsy to say the least. But to reiterate, they went down in the, with the last, basically the, one, the last kick of their season, having been 1-0 and 2-1 up away at Chelsea, not needing to win the game, only needing to draw the game, and yet still conspiring to lose in two goals in the last 15 minutes and go down. Having gone on that extraordinary run to the final day and had the lead with 15 minutes to go, that's a special effort, it really is. And playing a Chelsea team who were tuning up for the FA Cup final a week mm. later, so they weren't particularly interested in, in that game, but they had um, Mark Steen. You know, we've spoken a lot about strikers and, and their contributions in this season. Mark Steen's having come in from, from Stoke in October was absolutely invaluable to Chelsea, who were in the relegation zone as late as November in this season. And that was Glenn Hoddle's first in charge. And um, it might well have been his last if, he, if he'd have taken them down, which may well have happened had it not been for, for Steen, kind of one of the lesser remembered Premier League goal getters. But this was his, um, his landmark season, definitely. Still to come in today's show, of course, the concluding part of our first quarterfinal between Alvaro and Pat. And that is coming up next. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. That's right, the general knowledge round then of our first quarter final. Alvaro, you're back. Hello. Hello to you and Pat Nevin, you're back as well. I am, and back and excited. I got five out of five, I think, in the first round as well. It didn't do as well. So, uh, Alvaro, you are not out of this, I promise you. I, I knew that this was going to be difficult. That's absolutely correct, Pat. Five out of five in both of your specialist uh, subject rounds so far. But general knowledge might be the issue. Alvaro, you're up first and you really need a strong score here to put the pressure on Nifty Nevin. Are you ready for your general knowledge questions? Of course I am. Question one. What was notable about Mario Balotelli's only Premier League assist for Manchester City? It was the assist to Kun Agüero in 2012 to win the, the title. Absolutely correct. Question two. Which club plays at the Parken Arena? I don't know. It's FC Copenhagen. Question three. Who were the last team to win the European Cup Winners' Cup? That was Galatasaray. It was Lazio. Mm. It, was, it was Lazio, Alvaro. On to question four then. What do the following players have in common? Mats Hummels, Robert Lewandowski, Mario Goetze, Stefan Reuter and Thomas Helmer. They all played for Dortmund, Borussia Dortmund. Well, that's true, but there's something more specific than that. 
they all played for Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. Is correct. And question five then. You're level now with Pat Nevin. Whose is this career path? Ajax, Real Madrid, Inter, Galatasaray, Nice, Algarafa. Wesley Schneider. Is correct. So at the end of your general knowledge round, you scored three points out of five, giving you a one-point lead over Pat Nevin. Will it be enough, do you think, Alvaro? He is quite old, you know. <laughs> no, no, it's, 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 it's not enough. It's, not, it's definitely not enough. All right, we'll see then. Pat, are you ready? I am, and I got only one out of those five, so is that right? <laughs> it's not okay, a well, If you get another one out of five, we'll be heading into another tiebreaker situation with all the controversy <laughs> that that entails. So let's see. Question one. How many European trophies, not including Super Cups, did Sir Alex Ferguson win? How many European um, trophies? I'm going two. It was four, Pat. The yeah. Cup Winners' Cup twice and the Champions League twice. Oh, yes, Aberdeen. And then, oh, yes, 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 yes. I should have mm. said three. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> well, four would have been better, but yes. Question two. Who was the last club, or what was the last club, that Ron Atkinson managed? <gasps> oh, God, is it West Bromwich album? Is it Aston Villa? Is it? Oh, I have no idea. I'm going West Bromwich Albion. <laughs> No, it was Nottingham Forest. Question three. Which club plays at the Jose Alvalade Stadium? See if I've been here and I don't know the answer. Uh, sounds a bit Spanish. Genuinely. Yeah. Um, the Jose Alvalade uh, Stadium. No, I'm not getting it at all. I'm going to guess it's a new Atletico Madrid one. No, 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 no. It's in Portugal. It's sporting. Iberian Peninsula that's as close as I right. get yeah. I've actually have yep. been there yes I have actually been to that stadium <laughs> ok question no points for that though Pat question mm-hmm. four what was the name of the Japanese club that Gary Lineker played for at the end of his career um, um, oh no it's not coming to me uh, I cannot remember it so I can't, I think it begins with SH but I'm going to have to say Hiroshima because I can't remember it <laughs> No, I'm afraid it wasn't Hiroshima. Nagoya Grampus 8 was the club. Question five then, Pat, and this is now crucial to force a tiebreaker. Question five, Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo shared the Ballon d'Or for 10 straight years between 2008 and 2017. But who was the player who won it the year before that run began? So the last player to win the Ballon d'Or before the Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo... Um. I'm going to throw in Ronaldinho as a guess. No, it was Kaká. Yeah. It was Kaká, which means, Pat, that I'm afraid you exit the competition despite two perfect rounds in your special subjects. It's Alvaro Romeo who proceeds to the semi-final. <laughs> Alvaro, how do you feel? I cannot believe it. I feel great. I feel very good. I feel like God have given me a second chance and I took it and, well... It's great. It's a brilliant feeling, really. That's what the semi-final means, listener. Uh, Pat, awful to see you go, but compliments again on your extraordinarily encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of football of yesteryear. Yes, I'm, I'm actually OK up until, you know, about 50 years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's been great to talk to you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon, Pat. And you too, 
Alvaro. Uh, for now, uh, congratulations to Mr. Romeo. Yes, well done, Alvaro. Well done. Thank you, Pat. You, you've been a, a hell of an opponent. Wonderful scenes as Alvaro books his place in, in the semi-final. The Everton to Pat Sheffield United. Yes. Nicely done, Matt. Nicely done. Well, Alvaro will be facing in the semi-finals, Daniel, the winner of your quarter-final with Julien Laurence, which I think I'm right in saying is coming up this Thursday. Worrying stuff. It's, it's coincided with the, with the last three days I've got to finish uh, a book I'm writing, which is not helpful revision-wise. Have you made the special subject the subject of your book? I should. I really should have done. Uh, no, I've chosen uh, current Premier League stadia. I'm hoping it's oh, just okay. going to be which club plays at, which club plays at. Yeah, Matt thought that when he said squad numbers. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Didn't work out that way. Alrighty, well that's coming up on Thursday. Uh, really looking forward to that in the next edition of Totally Football Show, which will also uh, feature, I think, a bit of chat about songs after hearing that glorious number from Status Quo and Man United today. We'll be Perhaps, if we've got time, touching on some of the most glorious and uh, most interesting musical collaborations uh, that football has thrown up. And we'll also, of course, have more of our Champions League story. We'll be up to Chapter 7, the 98-99 one. So a bit of a Man United uh, uh, chat in that, I imagine. Uh, That's it, though, for today's edition of the show. Many, many thanks to Michael Cox. Thank you. To Daniel Story. Thank you. And to Matt Davis-Adams. Thanks, James. And look forward to catching up with you next weekend. Uh, For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.